Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 349 of Forgotten Classics, where we are beginning a classic so forgotten I only discovered it recently when, thank goodness, someone recorded it for LibriVox. The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. In fact, you want to talk about a forgotten person, it's almost impossible to find anything about this author online. She seems to have written three mysteries, specifically. And The Green Jacket, when I was listening to the LibriVox recording, which is what we'll listen to, I was looking online saying, oh, there must be a Kindle version. A lot of times these books are on Project Gutenberg, and this book is from 1917. No. You can find paperback copies for $25, or maybe they're old hardback copies, for $25 or more. So this is really the only place you're going to find it for a while. The mystery itself, I love so much. She did write other books, and some of those are on Gutenberg. I've downloaded them to my Kindle to take a look at them. They aren't on LibriVox. And... They're kind of interesting looking. I think they're more novels, though, human interest novels. One of them seems to be about a happy old soul named Uncle William who lives on an island. One of them seems to be about, gosh, is her name Aunt Mary anyway, or Aunt Jane, something. Anyway, she works in a hospital, so you know, imagine all the people she meets. This also may have mysteries in it, and it also may be wonderful, or these books may all be wonderful, but... um. I haven't read them, so I don't know. If you've read them, let me know. I'm really interested in the other two mysteries that she wrote because I liked this one so much, but they're impossible to find, at least looking around online. I'm going to keep an eye out when I go to used bookstores from now on. And I'm really hoping, since they get mentioned in the book description that I'm about to read you, that this reader will go ahead and read them for us, that she's got access. The reader is J.M. Small here. I'm not sure if that's how you say the name. I really like her reading, and there are several books we may listen to in the future that I've enjoyed listening to more than once by her. Let me read you about the book. An early example of the early female private detective, Jeanette Lee's Millicent Newberry made her first appearance in The Green Jacket in 1917 and was also featured in two later books, The Mysterious Office in 1922 and Dead Right in 1925. Miss Newberry brings her own unique perspective to her cases, only accepting those where she has a say in what happens to the guilty party. She is rarely without her knitting, using it as a technique to put clients and suspects alike at ease, while also knitting her notes on the case into the pattern. So, shades of Madame Dufarge, in a way, from A Tale of Two Cities. In the green jacket, Millie goes undercover to solve a case involving a stolen emerald necklace that, despite the efforts of other detectives, including her former boss, Tom Corbett, has never been recovered. So one of the things I really enjoyed about listening to this is her very different approach. She does a lot of listening and a lot of knitting. (laughs) But at the same time, what I enjoyed is that, and we'll learn some of this in the upcoming chapters, is that she is a force to match with any man. And there are no other female detectives. In fact, her boss, Tom Corbett, is going to make 
a lot of that very clear when we meet him soon. So I don't want to go into how she's different or why, but I found it such an interesting technique and from such an old book. It seems very modern in many ways. This book has a lot of chapters, but many of them are fairly short, so we're going to get through it fairly quickly. And in fact, usually I would follow a LibriVox book, which we just finished, Lone Star Planet, with a book that I had read, but that book was pretty short too. And I have to admit, I'm not caught up on all the recording I wanted to get done before we started one that I was reading. So we'll throw this in there. Together they'll make a normal size or a bit long book, and then we'll have one that I'm reading. And while we're waiting for me to get done recording, I think you're going to very much enjoy this unique book that is a true forgotten classic. So let's dive into The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee, Chapter One. The elevator boy tossed her a kindly grin as she stepped into the elevator but she seemed not to notice. She was a small woman in gray, gray eyes and hair, and the close-fitting suit and small hat were of soft gray. Anyone passing her in a crowd would not have noticed her. There might have been the sense of something pleasant that had passed, a subtle perfume that came elusively, but nothing to recall. The only bit of color about her was a knitted green silk purse in her hand, with curiously wrought gold fittings. It went oddly well with the gray dress and hat. The elevator boy looked back over his shoulder. "'Good morning, Miss Newberry,' he said quietly. "'Good morning, Joe. How goes the day?' "'All right, now,' answered Joe, with elaborate emphasis. She smiled a little and stepped out at the seventh floor. "'You've been kissing the Blarney Stone again,' she said reprovingly. He grinned and slammed the grated door behind her. His head, as it descended into the abyss, was turned admiringly to the trim gray figure going down the corridor to the left. At the first corner she turned sharp to the right, and was facing a ground-glass door at the end of the hall. The dark letters against the light in the room beyond stood out clearly. The Millicent Newbury Agency, consultations from ten to twelve and two to four, or by appointment. She opened the green silk purse and took out a little key, and inserted it in the lock and opened the door. The room was an ordinary small office, with a desk and three chairs. A rather beautiful old rug covered the floor. The walls were gray. The only color in the room, besides the blended harmony of the rug, was the green shade at the window and a green blotter on the desk. As she came in she lifted a small pasteboard box from beside the door and carried it to her desk. The lifted cover revealed a few flowers that she arranged in a light bunch and placed in a glass on the desk. She removed her hat and coat, hanging them in the closet, and from the closet she produced a pair of paper sleep protectors and a dustless duster with which she wiped the already spotless furniture. She straightened the shade and returned the duster and paper cuffs to the closet, and seated herself by the desk, arranging the inkstand and pens, erasers and pencils in exact order. All her movements were deft and precise, and still hardly more than a passing of grayness. Yet there was nothing ethereal about her. She was plump and healthy, and a little stout. In her gray eye there was a look of keenness as it glanced around the spotless office. An artist might have liked to paint her as she sat beside her desk, so perfect was the setting of the room for her personality. 
she opened a drawer at the right of the desk and took out a soft bundle of green wool and spread it out on her lap it was the beginning of a knitted garment the needles were amber she took them up and dropping the ball of wool into the half-open drawer she began to knit the sunlight shining across the many-coloured rug fell on the desk and lighted the glass of flowers and touched the grey figure warmly the needles moving swiftly through her fingers glowed with the warmth one could not have guessed watching the bent head and the thoughtful grey eyes that followed the needles what was the purpose of the agency on the ground glass door seen from this side it was meaningless a quick knock sounded on the door and she looked up she tossed the knitted garment into the half-open drawer and closed it with one hand as she turned a little come in she took up a pen from the desk and examined the point casually and glanced toward the opening door why tom there was a note of pleasure in it how are you milly he came forward graciously holding out a heavy hand sit down she pointed to the other chair by the desk you are the last person i was expecting to see when the door opened she studied the strong figure with its broad shoulders and well-set head he nodded back to her glance you haven't seen me for some time two years said milly yes it's been a good while he sighed a little and glanced about the quiet room nice coop you've got up here to think in i wish i had anything half as good always somebody racketin around or wantin something he sighed again then he seemed to relax to the quiet of the room he settled more comfortably into his chair how did you find me asked milly went to the downtown office you've got a first-rate staff down there it was as much as ten minutes before i could find out where to get you that's a good while for me you know she smiled faintly then i got hold of that red-haired one esther he nodded and she graciously permitted me to have your address after she'd sized me up a bit they're busy enough down there he moved an expressive hand typewriters clack clackin call boys runnin everybody talk talk talkin milly laughed softly you never exaggerate but i suppose they are busy that's what we want business well you've got it i don't see just how you've managed it either he looked at her i tell you frankly i never thought you'd turn the trick you told me that two years ago didn't you and i meant it he seemed to muse on it people don't like women detectives as a rule don't trust em won't hire em you hired me suggested milly yes but under me that's different you worked under my direction did as i said he seemed to expand a little i never said you weren't a good detective he went on only i didn't believe the public would stand for a woman given a case over to her entirely i've missed you he added irrelevantly i'm glad of that said milly how's the business oh so so you never ought to have left me he said almost petulantly you wouldn't let me have my own way responded milly i never refused you anything did i no what was it then i've puzzled about it more than a little what was it you wanted this said milly she moved her hand and his eye took in the quiet room the room's all right he nodded but there's something behind the room you want something i don't understand she made no reply he glanced at her placid face almost irritably isn't there oh bother see here milly 
I've got a case I want your help with. I've worked it over till I'm blue. Nothing doing. I've come to you straight. Will you help me? They sat looking at each other for a minute, his eyes in the dark, stubborn face with the little cynical line about the lips, staring into the quiet gray ones. She smiled a little and shook her head. You would not give me a free hand. He leaned forward. What do you mean by a free hand? You're always talking about a free hand. That's why you left me, far as I make out, a free hand. He spoke a little contemptuously. Well, take it. You mean you will do as I say? A little light leaped into her face. I want you to catch this Jim Hudson. He slapped a paper he held in his hand. I know he's guilty, but I can't get at the facts. If you can pin him down, it's a big case, big reward. And then there are others. You'll find a dozen cases hung up waiting for you. She seemed to hesitate. The room, in the morning light, was very still. The handful of flowers on the desk gave out a subtle fragrance. The man's eye rested on them gloomily. "'I suppose you'd want to keep this office. But we can merge the downtown ones. There's big business for us if we join forces. We'll make New York sit up.' "'And you would let me have my own way, keep on just as I am now?' "'Anything in reason. I've told you that, time and again. I'm willing to do anything that's reasonable.' She shook her head a little. You wouldn't call what I'm doing reasonable. You tell me and I'll see, said Tom craftily. She turned it over. Yes, I'm going to tell you. His face expanded. I wouldn't tell you when I left, because I did not know then whether it would work. I wanted a chance to try it out. Now I know. Oh, it works all right, said Tom gloomily. It works. I ought to have had that sergeant case. He turned to her. Yes, said Milly. She was smiling a little. Tom nodded. You did nothing with it, quite out of your range. His hand spread a generous circle. Then his face darkened. And yet sergeant seems contented. I met him the other day. He said they dropped it, weren't going to prosecute Tolman. Of course that means you couldn't get the evidence for them. And yet everybody knows Tolman's guilty. He glared at her a little. No, Tolman was not guilty, said Milly quietly after a minute. He wasn't? No. Who was then, do you know? Mr. Sargent told you he was not going to prosecute, didn't he? That disposes of the case. He took the rebuff gracefully. Well, if you'll show me a way to lose a case and keep a satisfied client, I'm willing to join forces for anything you say. They're not always satisfied, said Milly. You mustn't expect that. I don't expect anything, declared Tom. I never expected to come to you and talk like this. But you've got the business, and I want it. I know you're straight. I've got the grip. He clenched his great hand as he spoke. But you've got something else. He looked at her meditatively. You can sit still in a chair and know who's guilty and where to look for him. I wish I could, said Milly softly. It's something I haven't got, went on Tom, whatever it is, a kind of sixth sense, I'd call it. They say women have it sometimes. Men tell me things their wives say, that they can't make out how they know em, but they're so. I've thought of getting married, he said expansively. Oh, returned Milly. He ignored the gentle irony. I've made up my mind to get you to go in with me. Instead of marrying me? Instead of marrying anyone, retorted Tom, I can't be bothered. 
"'Tell me what you want, and we'll draw up a contract today.' Millie's hand reached out to the drawer beside her, but before she could open it the telephone bell rang sharply. A look of vexation crossed her face. "'I forgot to cut it off. I don't mean to let them call while anyone is here. If a client breaks off talking, you lose a week.' He nodded understandingly. "'There's a lot in it,' he said. The bell rang again, imperiously, with a little burr at the end, and Millie took up the receiver and listened. "'Millicent Newberry, yes,' a long silence, punctuated by the changing lights in Millie's face. "'Very well, I'll come.' She hung up, with a little sigh, and a look of reluctance. "'I'll have to go, Tom. It's the office, a case that can't wait. When shall I see you again?' His face was a study. "'If I didn't know you, Millie—' "'I should think you were faking it, to get out of telling me. "'You've never been willing to tell me straight.' "'His hands were thrust into his pockets, and his face was a little grim. "'She smiled at him. "'Why, Tom, there isn't anything I want so much as a good talk with you.' "'Oh, all right.' "'The hands came out of his pockets. "'I'll stay till you come back.' "'I may be half an hour,' said Milly. "'I'll wait,' responded Tom. "'Can I smoke?' He glanced dubiously about the sunlit room. She laughed out. "'Open the window, and sit rather near it.' She took her hat and coat from the closet. "'What will you do, to amuse yourself?' She was pinning on the grey hat, and her eyes looked out at him inquiringly under the brim, as she thrust in the pins and straightened it firmly in place. "'I've got the case,' said Tom. "'The one I came to you about. I've wanted just such a quiet place as this.' to think it over. Nobody coming and going. Very well, in half an hour, then. She nodded to him and went out, and Tom Corbin, the head of what had been till two years ago the most important detective agency in the state, was left alone in the quiet office, with a little bunch of flowers on the desk and the sunshine filling the room. Chapter 2 He went over and threw up the window and stood looking out. Presently he lighted his pipe and drew a whiff or two and let it out, free, grateful puffs. His hands were thrust into his pockets. By and by he strolled over to the desk and stood looking down at it. One hand came out of his pocket and tried the drawer at the right. It was locked. He returned his hand to his pocket. The action had almost been automatic, at the most curious rather than intentional. Presently he reached out and tried the drawer below. It slid back into his hand, and he was gazing down at the maze of green wool. He lifted it gingerly, an amber needle slid from its place and fell to the floor. Tom picked it up hastily. He glanced at the green knitted stuff a little dubiously. It struck him there was something wrong about one end of it. How was a man to tell? He replaced it, with a little look of irritation, and laid the amber needle on top of it and shut the drawer. He looked about him and crossed to a file-case by the door. He knelt before it, fussing at the lock, and reached into his pocket for a key-ring, from which he selected a curious bit of stout wire with curious curves in it and a little hook at the end. He inserted it in the keyhole, manipulating it with a light touch, his other hand pulling slightly on the upright bar that secured the drawers. The bar gave a little in his hand, and a look of satisfaction crossed his face. There was no guilt in the face as he pulled open the drawer and looked in. He was only playing a good game on Millie, paying her out a bit for leaving him alone. The drawer contained long iron rods strung with index cards, and his fingers pushed them apart. His puzzled gaze studied first one, and then another, and another. He shut the drawer with a motion of impatience, and opened the one above with the same result. He stood and glared at the innocent file-case, 
and reached to the upright bar and drew it together. The lock snapped in place. Tom Corbin sauntered to the window and stood again with hands in pockets, looking down on the teeming city. He was supposed to be thinking out the Hudson case, but his mind was filled to overflowing with Millie. He found himself a little excited. He could not rid the office of her presence. That green stuff there in the drawer behind him was full of her, and those flowers on the desk. He wheeled about and looked at them meditatively. He had forgotten how Millie made you feel. He knew he had missed her from the business, but he had not remembered she was just like this. He moved restlessly and brought a chair to the window and sat down, the smoke from his pipe drifting up against the blue of the sky. He was recalling Millie as she appeared in his office that first day ten years ago. He had been puzzling over the Babcock case, he remembered. Everybody called it suicide. He had had his suspicion that it was not suicide, but murder, and somehow his suspicion must have leaked out. There had been a mysterious hint in the morning's paper. He was vexed with the whole business, and not in a pleasant mood. Then the door had opened, and a young woman, hardly more than a girl, it seemed to him, had come hurriedly in. She had looked about her with a half-frightened air. She had something to tell him, about the Babcock case, she said. They were neighbors, not friends. She did not know them, but she had often seen John Babcock coming and going. She did not believe he had committed suicide. She had paused, breathless, and Tom had nodded, a little cynically, toward the morning's paper. She flushed quickly. Yes, that's why I came. I don't believe Wendell Payson is guilty. Tom could recall now the look in her face that had made him motion for her to sit down and tell him what she knew. But when she had told it, there was nothing you could put your finger on, nothing that would seem to be of the slightest use. She had come to him because of a conviction she had that John Babcock had been murdered, and by a woman to whom he was once engaged. She had no reason for this belief, nothing to support it, except that she saw the woman once in a streetcar. She knew, herself, that her coming to him must seem foolish, but when she read in the morning's paper that Wendell Payson was suspected, she had put on her hat and come straight to the Corbin agency. Tom Corbin, sitting by the open window of Millie's office, removed his pipe and blew a trailing, meditative cloud of smoke. It had been a long road from that morning, and the girl's half-frightened belief in what she told him, to the gray-haired woman who had faced him so quietly this morning, and who was now on her way to a busy office that handled quite half the business of the city. Yes, quite half. Tom nodded a little grimly, and smoked on. He had followed the clue she gave him in the Babcock case at first unbelievingly, and then, as events developed, with keen scent. The woman had confessed to it eventually. She was serving her term in state's prison today. The case had brought glory to the Corbin agency. It had been a baffling case and well advertised. Tom knew he had handled it well, but he also knew to whom the real credit was due. After the Babcock case, he had employed Millie at times, first informally, for shoplifting cases or salesgirl thefts, or as a seamstress or chambermaid in some place where a man could not go without suspicion. Later she had become a regular member of the force, and he had found himself depending on her more and more, not so much for facts and the combining of facts, as for a theory that would fit them. And then, just as he was congratulating himself that he had a tool to his hand, as fine and keen-tempered as Millie, and trusty, and that she would not always be making extortionate demands for salary or promotion, like a man. She seemed to love the work for itself. Just as he was settling down comfortably to all this, Millie had announced her intention of setting up an office of her own. Tom went back over it, the things he had offered her, better pay, promotion, half-time, and she had shaken her head at him. No, she didn't want them. What was it she had wanted, he wondered. She had got it, sure, whatever it was. He glanced about the compact little room, Phew, he would suffocate in a day of it, and yet there was something. 
he looked around him again. It was Millie herself. There was nobody quite like Millie. He had found that out in those early days when she first left him. It was as if he had lost an eye or an ear, both eyes, both ears, he thought savagely. It seemed to him he had begun all over again, getting at facts in the old, bungling way. And meantime, Millie's office had spread from a room to four, and from four to twelve. And this morning he had suddenly come to his decision to join forces with her. He would offer her a partnership. It was the one thing he had balked at. It had not been mentioned. But he had a conviction that if he had said to Millie that morning she left, "'See here, Millie, we'll go shares. I'll make you my partner,' he had a feeling that if he had said this, Millie would have done it. Well, he had offered it now. The word partner had not been mentioned, but they both knew that was what it would come to. Tom blew a placid cloud of smoke. It floated from the window. He had been long enough about it. He could not understand now why he had waited so long. This morning, as soon as the idea had come to him, he had not waited a second. He had clapped on his hat and gone straight to Millie's office, the downtown one. They were surely doing the business there. His mind dwelt happily on the downtown office, and the smoke from his pipe drifted from the window and built castles in the air. Chapter 3 And in the downtown office, Millie, sitting in a large chair drawn up before a table, was confronting a thick-set, clumsily built man, a Dane, it might be, from his speech. "'I got to go, Miss Newberry,' he was saying stolidly. "'My woman, she say, all time, you take job. She don't know I can't go new place.' He stared at her almost resentfully, yet with a kind of deference in the slouching shoulders. "'Where is it, Mr. Bergman?' asked Millie quietly. "'Milwaukee,' said the man. "'Good work, big pay. My wife's brother, he say. Come quick, you lose big job. He don't know I can't go to Milwaukee. I got to go, Miss Newberry.' The big hands that had been shifting his old hat through nervous fingers gripped it suddenly, and his eyes lifted themselves to her face with a dumb look of insistence. She returned the look thoughtfully. "'How long has it been?' she asked. Ten months,' said the man quickly. "'And you have been reporting to me every two weeks for ten months?' He nodded with a hopeless gesture. "'And if you went to Milwaukee?' He started. A gleam came into his blue eyes. "'I be good man,' he said. "'I keep straight. I work hard. Big pay.' A strong man he stretched out his great arm yes i know you're strong if you hadn't been strong you wouldn't have laid out sergeant mckay with one blow i didn't know he police interpolated the man eagerly i just hit anybody all round he waved his great arm dramatically it swung past milly's head and the hand descended with a thud on the table between them you know i good man he said impressively milly nodded but you struck down the sergeant yes the blue eyes dropped an instant then they raised themselves, trustfully, to her. "'When you're drunk, you hit, all round,' he explained simply. "'So I understand,' returned Millie with a smile. "'Now suppose you get drunk in Milwaukee and hit all round, and are arrested again.' The man started a little. "'Yes,' said Millie quietly, "'and then, when you break jail and escape, and they catch you again, in Milwaukee, it means prison, six months, a year, perhaps. Isn't it better to stay here and report to me every other week?' better than being in prison in milwaukee and no one to earn money for the children how is carl she asked abruptly the man's face was suffused with a quick glow of pride he do grand he said he bring home praise card they say carl mcfine boy he hasn't had to stay out of school for nearly a year now commented milly but when his father gets drunk and goes to jail or prison and carl has to stay out to earn money he can't be the fine boy you want him to be wasn't that what you came to america for mr bergman for the sake of the children 
She asked it slowly, watching his face. The blue eyes were studying the floor. He was like a great overgrown boy, his sturdy figure standing erect before her. But when he raised the blue eyes shrewdly and looked at her with straight glance, they suggested Viking days and the strength of battle, and the Danish forebears whose blood raced in his veins seemed trying to speak in the broken words that crowded to the clumsy lips. "'I stop drink, Miss Newberry. I begin new man, Milwaukee. When they say have a drink, I shake head. I go way off. My boy, he stay school. My wife, she have nice shawl.' He leaned forward with eager gaze. "'I try hard,' he said simply. Millie's gaze was noncommittal. "'Why do you want to drink, Mr. Bergman?' she asked. "'Why is it so hard for you to stop? Is it the taste of it you want?' His eyes sought the corners of the room for answer, and his hand turned the old felt hat. His neck raised itself a little from the blue shirt-band. "'I don't like it, that stuff,' he announced. "'No?' "'Bad stuff,' he went on slowly. "'Bad in here,' he placed an appropriate hand. "'You drink it because you're bored, I believe,' said Milly, looking at him shrewdly. He turned a grateful glance. "'Yes,' he heaved a sigh. "'I get up. I go to work. I work hard. I mean be good man.' but all time I feel bad in here. I want laugh, I want sing, I want something happen. I say, go take drink. And then things happen, said Milly dryly. Listen, Mr. Bergman, I'm going to put you on a long parole for six months. You are to go to Milwaukee and take this job. He started eagerly. She held up a hand. At the end of six months, if you have been drunk even once, you are to come back and report to me here. The man's gaze was thoughtful. That take big money, he said. It will take bigger money to get drunk, won't it? said Milly curtly. I may have to be in Milwaukee. If I am, you can report to me there. If not, you will come to me here. The man looked at it a long minute. He sighed heavily. Thank you, miss. Then said another minute. I don't get drunk, he said. I don't believe you will, replied Milly. If I thought you would, I shouldn't let you go. You have kept straight nearly a year now, with no excitement except coming to see me once in two weeks. Her eye twinkled a little. You won't have that excitement now, and I am going to tell you what to do. He looked at her trustingly. You are to plan every day something different to do. Something different? said the man vaguely. He looked helplessly about the room. What I plan? he asked. She shook her head. Don't ask me. You must think. That will help you forget the drinking. Listen. She leaned forward a little. You are going to have more money in Milwaukee. Big pay, said the man expansively. Yes, well— you must spend some of the money for good times. Good times? He scratched his head. Then he shook it, without enthusiasm. For all of you, said Milly. Things for the children, and for your wife. Every day be planning something to do when you get home, or for Saturday afternoon or Sunday. Make a garden for them, or take them on a picnic. Think of things, she said energetically. He gazed at her humbly. You think that good way? He asked doubtfully. I know it is, said Milly. You keep thinking about the children. Make them happy and well, and you won't want to drink. She rose and held out her hand. Goodbye, she said quietly. I don't think you will come to see me again. Something like regret was in the man's face, striving to touch the thick lips, and Milly looked at it with eyes that held a quick light, as if some joy came to her. Goodbye, she said. Write to me some day about the children. I shall want to hear about them. He took the hand awkwardly, and dropped it and moved to the door. At the door he looked back. "'Good-bye,' he said. "'You write to me,' said Milly, "'about the children.' He held up a clumsy hand and looked at it. "'I don't know how to write,' he said slowly. "'But Carl, he write. He learn in the school already.' 
He looked at her, as if the words were shaping in a deep place, and groping toward her. "'I thank you,' he said slowly. "'You make good man for me. I thank you.' She nodded, and a little quick mist seemed to come between her and the clumsy figure passing through the door and closing it with careful hand. The man had kept straight for ten months. She had little fear for him now. And something passed with him, out through the door, a kind of grim will to keep straight that she had been watching shape itself for ten months. He was stronger than he knew. She turned with a little sigh and gathered up a handful of papers from the table and went out. She had suddenly remembered Tom Corbin in the uptown office, probably chafing and fuming at delay. She went quickly toward the entrance of the building, thinking only of Tom waiting in the office and Tom's impatience. But in the revolving outer door she paused. A young man in the opposite compartment had smiled to her and touched his hat. They both moved forward, and the door swung round, and he was still in the opposite compartment, begging her, with a little gesture, to wait for him. She stepped back into the hall, and when the door swung round, bringing him to her side, she greeted him with a smile. "'Did you want to see me?' "'I thought you wanted to see me,' he said half-whimsically. His shoulders straightened a little as he said it, and he looked down at her. "'It's my last day, isn't it?' he suggested with a quiet look. "'So it is,' her face lightened. "'I am sorry, but someone is waiting for me in the uptown office. I can't ask you to come again, of course.' She held out her hand. "'So thank you, and good luck to you.' He took her hand slowly. "'Thank you,' he said, looking down at her a little quizzically. "'But you don't cheat me out of a visit like that. I shall come again.' The words were deliberate, and there was a quiet intentness in his face. "'You want to come?' she asked. A little flush seemed to travel across her grayness. "'I wouldn't miss it for the world,' he replied. The quiet glance did not leave her face. A little look of reserve touched its flitting color, and she spoke half-doubtingly. "'I am not sure when I—' But he brushed it aside. "'Oh, you can't put me off. When a man has been calling on you regularly for at least a year, he has some rights, surely.' There was something almost grave in the laughing protest of the words, and she met it with a long, quiet look. Very well. She consulted the tablet slip that she took from her green purse, and he took a step forward, looking down at her and at the slip, almost with an air of proprietorship. "'Put it up, please, Miss Newberry,' he said quickly. "'I'm not going to trouble a busy woman like you with whims. Perhaps you will let me call on you some evening?' He was looking at her intently, and she returned the look, the flush flitting again in her face. "'Why, of course,' she said cordially. "'I shall be glad to see you any time. Only—' She paused a moment. I am often away from home, you know. Then I shall come again, if I find you out. You will not get rid of me so easily with an excuse. And he touched his hat and moved away through the swinging door. Her eyes followed the tall figure passing into the crowd. At the edge of the sidewalk he turned and looked back and raised his hat gravely to her, before he disappeared in the crowd. There was something almost significant in the gesture, and with a little sigh she replaced the tablet in the green silk purse and snapped it thoughtfully. Then, suddenly— she remembered again Tom Corbin, waiting in the office uptown, and she hurried out. CHAPTER Four. He looked up a little cynically. "'I hope you haven't hurried,' he said with stern politeness. She smiled at the gesture that accompanied the words. "'I was detained.' She took off her hat and put it in the closet and seated herself by the desk, looking at him tranquilly. "'Now can we talk?' said Corbin, with satisfaction. "'Yes. Do you mind if I knit?' "'Not at all. Go ahead.' The response was light, but his eye had a cautious, waiting look, as she reached to the drawer beside her and gazed into it. 
Her hand stayed itself and passed thoughtfully across the edge of the drawer, before it lifted the amber needle from the top of the knitting and drew them both from the drawer. She held up the maze of green wool and looked at it with amused eyes, and at the row of stitches that gaped helplessly along the top. Corbin fidgeted a little. "'Funny thing, knitting,' he said. She assented and inserted the needle carefully through the gaping row of stitches. Her whole attention was absorbed in them. "'Anything wrong?' demanded Corbin irritably. "'No,' she replied. "'It is better to hold onto both needles when you take it up.' A little smile finished the row, and she held it up with the needle in place. "'That's the way it was,' she announced. "'Oh, bother,' said Corbin. "'I was just looking around,' he explained after a minute. "'Yes, I know.' Her fingers were flying nimbly through the wool, and her gaze rested on him placidly. "'Did you find anything that interested you?' she asked kindly. "'Not much. I should have to work on your cipher first. "'Yes,' she beamed on him. "'It's very simple.' "'Everything about you is simple, Millie.' He was tilting a little in his chair. "'Even the sergeant case was simple, I suppose.' His tone was thoughtful, and his eye rested on the file-case across the room. "'That meant a whole lot of money for somebody,' he said softly. "'Not for me,' returned Millie quickly. He looked at her and whistled meditatively between his teeth. "'Why not?' he said. She rested her knitting on her lap. "'That's what I'm going to tell you, Tom. It's my method,' she added, "'if you choose to call it a method.' She sat for a moment in silence, looking at him. "'Go ahead,' suggested Tom. She sighed a little and took up the knitting. "'I know you won't like it,' she said hesitatingly. "'I can't tell till I hear it, can I?' A little impatience slicked the words, and she smiled. "'No, of course not. I am only trying to think of some way of saying it that won't sound so absurd to you. It's like this.' She drew out a needle and turned the row of green wool and looked at it and smoothed it a little. "'You see, Tom, you and I don't want the same things.' She raised her eyes. He regarded her mildly. "'That is why I left you. I want a chance to say what shall be done with the criminals I catch.' He stared a minute. "'Maybe I'd like to be a justice of the Supreme Bench,' he offered. She shook her head. "'I'd rather be judge of the criminal court,' she responded, smiling. "'Oh, well, have it your own way.' The irony was magnificent. "'I mean to. I couldn't have my own way and stay with you.' He hedged a little. "'Well,' she smiled and shook her head. "'You couldn't stand for it. No, I want something quite different, Tom. It isn't common sense to go on catching folks and locking them up forever, or for a little while, and then letting them run loose. And the punishments we think up don't really punish them. We put a man in prison. Of course he doesn't like it.' "'Well, hardly,' said Tom dryly. But after all, the worst punishment for most of us is living right along in the world and knowing everybody has found you out and despises you and thinks of it every time they see you. That's what his wife and daughters have to live through every day, and his mother. They have to face the disgrace everywhere they go. I'd like to fix things so it wouldn't come quite so hard on them. I want to say what shall be done with the criminal I catch, she concluded. Send em flowers the way the ladies do, sneered Tom. "'Sentimental bosh! We've got to protect society. That's our work.' "'Yes, it's part of it.' He got up irritably and moved across the room. "'Do you mind if I smoke?' "'No.' 
He filled his pipe, crowding down the tobacco with a stern touch. He lighted it and drew a whiff or two, and came back to his place and sat down and looked at her. "'Go on,' he said. She glanced up. "'Tell me the rest,' he nodded. "'There isn't any rest,' said Milly, laughing. "'That's all.' "'I should judge so. What becomes of them after that?' "'Well, this is the part you particularly won't like,' she said hastily. "'I decide whether they are to have another chance, or to go to prison.' "'You?' She nodded. "'I told you you wouldn't like it. I wasn't sure myself how it would work when I began. I only knew I was tired of catching criminals to turn over to the police, and the police handing them over to the judge, and the judge handing them over to the prison, and the prison—well, you know, Tom, what they are when they come out of prison. It's a little better now under the new ideas, but not much. Why, you know and I know that half the men in prison ought never to have been sent there. It's bad for them, bad for society. He stirred uneasily. "'That isn't our affair,' he said. "'Our business is to catch em. What becomes of em after that doesn't concern us.' "'It concerns me,' said Milly. "'I got so I couldn't sleep nights, thinking of men in prison that would never have been there if it hadn't been for me. Men that I knew weren't really bad, drunk or mad or something. I made up my mind that if I did the catching I was going to have something to say about the punishment.' "'The law takes care of that.' retorted Tom. Not if it doesn't get to the law. She smiled at him disarmingly. That's where I come in. He made a little gesture, but she ignored the scorn in it. It isn't so hard as you think if you just try to see what's right and forget about the law. He laughed shortly. No doubt. We all slip sometimes, she went on. Everybody slips. You do and I do. He raised a protesting hand. She nodded and it isn't fair. Just because somebody sees you go down, or hunts around and finds out afterward about it, that you should be punished, and another man who isn't found out goes free. "'It's the law,' said Tom feebly. "'It's unjust,' said Millie. "'And it isn't common sense. I've thought about it a good deal,' she said mildly. "'Evidently,' murmured Tom. He was smoking slowly, and looking at her with half-shut eyes. It seems to me, she went on, that doing wrong is a good deal like the attraction of gravity. Everybody's liable to take a tumble sometime. Of course, if you sit still like a lump of dough, you're safe enough. But folks that fly around lively are liable to slip most of the time. Tom chuckled. And perhaps just slipping is punishment enough for some folks, she pursued. If they come down good and hard, maybe they won't slip again for a good while, perhaps not ever. "'Perhaps not,' sneered Tom. "'But who is going to tell?' "'If a man tells a straight story, he ought to have another chance,' said Milly firmly. "'And who's going to judge whether he's straight?' persisted Tom. Her color rose a little. "'I told you, I judge that myself.' He looked at her. "'You think you're competent to do that, I suppose?' The irony was very gentle, and she brushed it aside. "'Of course I am not competent, Tom. Nobody is. But it's better than shutting them up in prison at the expense of the State, and all the shame and poverty for his wife and children. Besides,' she said slowly, "'you do know pretty well when a man's telling a straight story. You know better than you think you do when a man's sincere. And they want to be straight. Why, I've seen them sometimes, Tom,' she leaned forward eagerly. "'I've seen them try.' 
when they got the idea that all they had to do was tell a straight story. I've seen them try till it was pathetic. They are pathetic, she declared, and they are sick, some of them. They can't tell the truth, no matter how hard they try. A man that can't tell the truth ought to be in prison just as much as if he had a temperature. He's got a germ. He needs a cathartic or something. She fired it at him, and his eyes twinkled. He's better off in a hospital. Only they're such pest-houses, the prisons we have now, she added reluctantly. But they're the best we've got, and you can't leave a man with smallpox germ going around loose, nor a confirmed criminal, not one that lies, she concluded. Tom laughed out shortly. You make out a good case, Millie. You ought to be a lawyer. She flushed. You say that for a compliment, but it isn't. How about your clients? said Tom abruptly. Don't they kick? They have to sign for it beforehand, said Millie. He stared. You mean they agree to let you? He broke off before the absurdity of it. They have to, she said tranquilly. She rolled up her work and tossed it into the drawer, and opened another drawer, at the right, and took out a paper. This is my form of agreement. She handed it to him, and he read it through and whistled softly. You mean they signed for that? He held it up, shaking it a little. She nodded. A smile broke across her face. I should ask you to sign it if we go into partnership, she said quietly. He handed it back to her with a quick negative gesture. Not for me, Millie, he said decisively. I told you you wouldn't stand for it, she replied. She replaced the paper in the drawer and closed it. His eye followed the movement. I never dreamed of anything like that, he retorted sternly. Better try dreaming it for a while, she responded. There's more in it than you think, perhaps. He nodded gloomily. But not for me. It's a pipe dream. He removed the pipe from his mouth and looked at its deadness and knocked the ashes into the tray she pushed toward him. He stowed the pipe in his pocket. That's done, he said. She was looking at him with half-amused eyes. His elbows rested on the chair arms and his fingers were crossed protectingly across his person. He shook his head once or twice. Simply absurd, he murmured. I knew you would think so, said Milly. You don't want me for a partner, then? He gave her a slow look. I want you, yes, but not on those terms. He nodded toward the closed drawer. Those are my terms, she said gently. Well, he roused himself and got up and reached for his hat. He turned to her. I'll tell you what I will do, he said magnanimously. I'll sign you for a single case. The Hudson case? said Milly in surprise. He shook his head. Not the Hudson case, but one quite as important. One that nobody will ever solve. He said it with a little cynical smile, and she hesitated a moment. Then she opened the drawer and took out the paper and handed it to him. He reached for a pen and filled in the blank spaces and signed his name with a firm hand. "'It's for the Mason Emeralds,' he said. He pushed the paper toward her. "'Find out who took the Mason Emeralds, and you shall do what you like with the thief. The reward we split even. It's big money.' "'Very well,' she folded the paper in slow fingers. "'When will you give me the history?' she asked. "'This afternoon, any time,' he said promptly that you'll come down to the office. We're full of stuff on the case. 
I'll turn it over to you and be glad to. We gave up the case two years ago after some of the hardest work the office ever put in on anything. I shelved it for good, and all, I thought. But this morning I happened to come on a clipping in my mail announcing the death of a woman whom we had suspected. He opened his purse and took it out and handed it to her. "'It's only fair to tell you, Millie, that you will never solve the case.' His manner was kind as he handed it to her. "'There is something uncanny in the way the Mason Emeralds dropped out of the world.' And even as he said it, the mystery seemed tagging at him, beckoning him to follow it once more. He shrugged his shoulders with a little gesture of defeat, and glanced about the quiet office, and then at Milly, standing with the clipping in her fingers, regarding him with a smile. He shook his head slowly. "'You're making a mistake, Milly, not to come in with me. We are made to work together. You have a good mind for details, but you need me to handle the case as a whole.' He spoke magnanimously, and she held out her hand. "'It's good to see you again, Tom. Yes, I'll come this afternoon. I can't tell, of course, whether I will take the case until I know more about it.' He stared at her a minute. Then he chuckled. "'No wonder you have the business,' he said softly. "'If you treat them all like that.' A knock sounded on the door, and she turned to it with a motion of excuse. The man who stood in the hall lifted his hat. "'May I see Miss Newberry?' he asked. "'I am Miss Newberry,' said Milly quietly. "'Will you come in?' And as the stranger entered and Tom passed out, he was wondering about the man. All the way down in the elevator, descending to the street, he was wondering what John Kingman wanted of Milly. Tom knew the man. He was a big serum specialist. He had heard him testify in a murder case last week. Millie certainly had luck, and she had the business. 